Uh, so go ahead and flip open to Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. We're continuing uh, in, our, in our series here. And um, while you're turning there, I want you to envision something with me for a moment. Uh, I want you to envision if I invited one of you to come uh, who had maybe never heard of uh, ice skating and I sat you down, I handed you a pair of, of ice skates. I said, here, why don't you put these on and um, here are some different pads to put on and you started to, you started to put these on and, um, and I handed you a stick and I said, hey, this is a, this is a puck and it's a little rubber round thing and I want you to take this, I want you to skate on this ice surface and what I want you to do is go down and shoot that puck right into the goal. And you're like, man, that sounds really fun. It'll be like a kid again. So you do it. You strap them up. You put the things on. You're holding the stick. You're kind of getting a feel for it. And uh, you start to skate along. And all is good. Now, uh, wouldn't I be a terrible friend if all of a sudden someone came and smashed your face into the side wall that you were holding on to? I mean, you're kind of a rookie. You've never done this before. You're balancing along. Pow! Someone comes with a hip check and slams into you. Now, put yourself there for a minute, Okay. What are your thoughts toward me at that moment? Right? You can't even say it in church. You shouldn't say it anywhere. Your thoughts toward me at that moment are not very pleasant. What are your thoughts toward the person that just came and hip-checked you? What are you doing? I mean, you're, you're pretty outraged, right? You're offended. You're shocked. You're mad. You're maybe confused, right? Here's what's interesting about the Christian walk. Some of you were led to the Lord in that exact same way. Hey, come to Jesus. You get to wear a really cool jersey. Pull it on. You get some neat pads. Here's a stick. It's the stick of the Spirit. I don't know how it was told to you, but you're skating along and you say, look, what you do in this life is you go and you score goals for Jesus. So go go score goals for Jesus. Now, here's the really cool thing about being an ice hockey player. You get to shoot the puck. You get a team around you. You get to high-five people a lot. You get a lot of free Gatorade. It's really, really fun. And you started off in the Christian life, and you started going along, and this is what happened to you. You got pounded. What happens to people who were told the Christian life is like the first thing without someone coming and hitting you is you're disillusioned. You don't want to talk about it with everyone because everyone at church seems really happy. Everyone at church seems like they have it together. Everyone at church doesn't have scars and they're just evidently skating down and putting the puck in the net every week. Something's wrong with me. I'm doing it wrong. Some people have left the church and left following Jesus because they think, man, I'm doing this wrong. Isn't that a crying shame of a way to teach someone about ice hockey? Ice hockey is a super, super fun sport. You put the pads on, you get hit like this. I can't say that doesn't hurt. Um, but in general, you can play and, and you're equipped for it. It's all in the preparation. It's all in how you were told what to expect. Now, if you're told, conversely, put these skates on, put this stick on. Now, by the way, there's not going to be one guy coming after you. There's going to be an entire team and their sole focus the entire time will be to keep you from putting the puck in the net. You ready for that? Now you're like, I don't know, but I'm going to try. By the way, you have a teammate. And off you go. Totally different scenario, right? Here's the big picture of this morning. We're going to talk about, we're entering into Ephesians chapter 6. Some of you who know your Bibles are like, wow, that's the full armor of God. We're commanded by Paul to put on the full armor of God. This makes for great kids' stories, great crafts. Some of you are like, yes, that sustained me. 
Uh, it, it is a great story, but there's so much more to it. Now, here's what I don't want to get into. I don't want to get into putting on ice hockey pads or old centurion Roman battle gear and not have a clue why you're putting it on. Some people learn about putting on the full armor of God and it leaves it as a kid's story because they don't understand someone's coming to check them like this. They don't understand there's going to be the opposition. So what we're going to do is we're going to break this into kind of a three-part series and I'm calling it the good fight. Because if we don't understand the nature of the battle, if we don't understand uh, the fact uh, that, that the Christian life is a battleground and not a playground, then the full armor of God is totally optional. Is it not? I mean, if no one's coming after you, you start to realize, man, these pads are kind of bulky. This doesn't feel good to skate around in all these things. I think I'm going to take these things off. This helmet, I get super sweaty in it. I'm going to take the helmet off. You stop using the elements because you think there's no one coming after you. Armor of God is optional if we don't understand kind of the, the, the nature of the Christian walk. Christian walk can be misleading. I think some of it is if we think about a walk as a stroll, as we're just cruising along, a Sunday stroll, we ought to think of the Christian walk. I think Christian walk is good to use because we, we see it in the, in the scriptures. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. But when you're walking as a Christian, you ought to think, like, like my family does when we're on a hike, we're never just hiking. We're hiking and we're evading some army. Um, we have broken in behind enemy lines and we're having to escape um, rocks become grenades, pine cones, same thing. Uh, we're shooting, we're ducking. There's any airplane that flies over, that's enemy. We're, we're taking cover, right? I mean, that's just, that's how we hike. That's, that's the, the norm for our family. That ought to be how you think of the Christian walk. But it's not playland. It's not imaginary. As you're doing your Christian walk, you ought to think of it as, I am, I am in enemy territory, my guard is up, and I'm paying attention. So that's how I want you to think about the Christian walk as we discuss it. Uh, this morning and beyond. Here's, here's what might indicate that you haven't understood this properly. If you have been shocked that bad things have gone on in your life. Now, by the way, as Americans, we can be very prone to this. We have so many things handed to us. Many of us have had great things given to us and handed to us by, by those who worked hard before. If you are shocked that bad things are happening to you, you may have been thinking that this was a stroll and not, and not an, a, a, a mission behind enemy lines. If you're blown away that you're tempted by sin, even though you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, you may have started to fall into this Christian life is a playground, not a battleground mode. <coughs> Some of you are going to go watch a hockey game shortly. Uh, it's playoff season. And as you watch, I want you to see, these are guys who grow beards, okay? They don't do, you know, like Braveheart, paint your face half blue. Instead, hockey players grow beards. None of them are shocked. I want you to just look at the struggle. Even if you couldn't care less about hockey, watch five minutes of a game. And just watch the struggle that goes on for every inch of it. You watch baseball playoffs, you think, you don't know if they're at war. You're confused by that. I mean, honestly, they, they could be just kind of friends playing a game, right? Hockey, I know I just offended some of you, I love it. Um, <laughs> hockey... Hockey, there's no confusion there whatsoever. It's crystal clear that they're in a battle as they play this game, right? As I watch that, I, I think about that sometimes. Man, that's the spiritual struggle. It's so hard to see. It's so hard to, to see that sometimes because we're locked into the material world, but that's what's really raging all the time. So it's raging right now in church services across America and around the world. 
The gospel's being preached. The Bible's being opened. We're talking about spiritual matters, and there's a spiritual war going on. But because we can't see it, taste it, touch it, we, we, we kind of lose sight of it sometimes. Now, um, I want to throw up a, uh, a statement here that's in your handout. If you're taking notes, you can follow along with this. And it says this, if you are a real Christian, and by the way, uh, some of you immediately just take the stance of, how dare you decide if I'm a real Christian or not? I don't decide that. I don't get to decide if you're a real Christian or not. Ephesians 1 to 3 describes what a real Christian is. Not a Christian in name, not a Christian as an American. It just describes, here's what a follower of Christ is. Here's what it means to be a Christian. So, chapter 1 to 3, if you're a real Christian. Walking a faithful life. You know what a faithful life looks like? I know because I've read uh, chapters 4 up until chapter 6, verse 9, where we ended uh, a couple weeks ago before Easter. That's walking a faithful life. It's not all that there is, but that's a real good breakdown. Here's what a Christian is. Here's what a Christian does. If you're a real Christian living a faithful Christian life, you will be engaged in the warfare that is described in the rest of this book. Chapter 6, verses 10 through following, he says, finally. He's talking about the rest of the letter. Finally, here's what it is. And he describes spiritual warfare. That's where he's going. So, if you're a real Christian walking a faithful life, you will be engaged in the warfare described uh, that, that, that's being described in the passage today. I would invite you to investigate. I would invite you to, to, to test yourself. The scriptures are constantly talking about test yourself. If you say, man, none of the stuff you're talking about tracks, maybe you're not a real Christian. That would be really good to start with. Jesus starts everything with, you must be born again. Doesn't it make sense? The enemy's going to leave you alone if you're not on that team. You pull the jersey on, you invite attack. Everyone who gets baptized in this church knows that. They can't walk away later and say, Dave, guys were checking me. Snipers were aiming for my head. I was attacked all the time. They're, they're warned about that and constantly warned about that. And we ought to be doing that for each other. Now, Christian walk is not just a stroll. It's sneaking along in enemy territory. Um, the second thing I want to just bring up by way of introduction is the idea of fighting. Now, people fight for all kinds of reasons, okay? Um, uh, some people fight uh, in the military. The guy in the middle is fighting to hold his pants up. You know, you see that. It's real. It goes on. The guy on the left, you can't even see. He's there, but he's fighting. You don't even see him. Uh, people, people, uh, people fight uh, in James chapter 4. I've, I've, uh, I've just kind of referenced this. I haven't put the whole verse up. But James chapter 4 says this. What causes the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires that war within you? There is a kind of conflict that is regular and ongoing because we're a sinful people and we wrong each other. We sin each other, right? There's a, there's a different kind of fight that we're talking about. And it's found, uh, just write this down. We're not even going to take time to turn there. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verses 6, six through 7, Paul's at the end of his life. He's writing to his protege, Timothy, a young pastor. Timothy's been in the heat of battle now for a little bit. He's actually kind of getting discouraged a little bit. Paul comes along and says, look, my time's almost done. But then he says this, familiar to some of you, I have fought the good fight. And he goes on to say, I have kept the faith. As we talk about spiritual warfare, that's where we're going. That's, that's what we're talking about. Here's a couple superheroes that are, I think, well on their way to fighting the good fight of faith. Today's kind of an introduction to the spiritual battle that we face um, in two weeks, we're going to do part two of this, which is just talking about battle gear. What are the weapons of war? And why are they so important? 
Uh, and then finally, we're going to wrap up the whole series of Ephesians uh, right at the end of May. And we're just going to really uh, zoom in on, on prayer, kind of this, this walkie-talkie in battle that, that Paul goes into about saying, pray for me, pray in all these circumstances. Uh, it's part of the warfare. Ephesians chapter 6, uh, let's follow along. I'm going to read it out loud, and then we'll pray and dive into it. Starting in verse 10, just a few verses this morning. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, this morning we are grateful that you have revealed to us how to be prepared for spiritual battle. And in this place right now, as is prayed over every single Sunday, we pray your protection. We pray against the enemy and against his legions, and we pray, God, that you would give us the truth, the light of truth that we need to be brought to the dark places of our hearts and mind. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Two basic verbs that I want you to see in this text. And from verse 10 on down through right near the end of this chapter, there's a lot of verbs in there, but here are the two that absolutely leap off the page. One is stand, and the other one is to take up. Your translations may translate a bit differently. Take up means to put on, receive, use. Stand and take up. Strong in the Lord is, Ben's already alluded to this, and we're not going to camp out a ton on this, but strong in the Lord and in his might is where Paul starts in this. And he makes this assumption, he makes this broad assumption that says, that's how we're to be strong in this. And if you go in and start to study the, the, the whole uh, context of this passage, it is not about, let me say this crystal clear for this three-week or three-session series, fighting the good fight does not come from more strength from you, but rather more strength through you. It's the Lord's strength. We're to be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. We find this elsewhere in Ephesians, and Paul is just reiterating this. And this is one of the places we tend to get this wrong. I did a whole series for the college students one time on spiritual disciplines. And here's how we kind of overarching said about this. And we're going to talk about this more in two weeks. But the big idea with spiritual disciplines is this. Stop trying and start training. Stop trying and start training. In other words, we tend to get in these patterns of trying harder trying harder. Hey, how are you doing in my walk? I'm not doing so good. I should be reading more. Meaning God's word. That may in fact be true, but that right there puts all the, all the, all the um, uh, impetus or, or, or weight on you. You ought to be reading more. What happens in two weeks when you're not reading more? You assume the power's gone and you assume that's where it is, right? That's a mistake that I don't want you to fall into. I don't want you to hear as we talk about fighting this battle that it comes from you. Ephesians has already said this. 
This is mostly from Ephesians chapter 1. That we are seated with Christ, that his life is our life, that his way is our way, his power is our power, his truth is now our truth. And now Paul comes along and says, and his strength is our strength. Remember the kind of strength God, God possesses? I just read this morning in a quiet time how Jesus was raised from the dead. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is available to you. Kids, look at me for a minute. Kids are really smart. You know why? Here's, here's one of the ways kids are really smart. I would venture to guess if Juliana was riding her motorcycle around, which if you've never seen is quite a sight. It's quite fun to watch. Juliana, stand up just for one second. Wave, wave your hand so they can see you. That's Juliana. She's got a cool fox, fox racing shirt on. I love it. Sit down, Juliana. Here's what's smart about Juliana and kids like her. Juliana's riding her motorcycle along. If she were to wipe out, injure her leg, and be laying there and try with all of her might to get her bike off of her and push and struggle and strive and do all of this, she would not give up saying, I've used up all my power. I can't get out. I'm just stuck. I guess I'm going to rot here and die. That's not what Juliana would do. Because Juliana is smart. What she realizes is that she has a dad. And she hasn't used up all the strength that's available to her. Her dad's sitting over eating a banana at the picnic table. You know what Juliana does? Help! That's it. Dad! That's it. All kinds of power comes to her. She uses it. She gets out. She's free. She walks away. Kids, you know what happens? Don't let this happen. Here's what happens. Kids tend to grow up into preteens, then teens, then young adults, and on into adulthood. And somewhere along that path, we tend to start thinking that all of our power is just contained within ourselves. We stop calling out for help. It's either pride saying we don't need help or we just are forgetful. There's more help available. We strive and struggle and strain. And sometimes we just give up and sit under a dirt bike in the mud. Kind of dumb, isn't it? Christian, child of God, son and daughter of God. Help. That's what we're talking about. That's the picture here, okay? That's being strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. How strong are you? Irrelevant. It doesn't matter. How strong is he? That's where my trust is. That's where my rest is. That's where my focus is. So that's the whole big idea as we move forward. Got it? Good. I got one nod. Got it? Yes. We're awake. All right. I'm going to talk to you about two things this morning. I just put up three, two. Uh, One is about the enemy. One is about the battle. And we're going to kind of uh, move through this a little bit. Looking at the enemy. The Bible talks very specifically about three enemies in the scriptures, at least three. Here they are, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Let me just kind of briefly break this down for you a little bit so you can kind of catch a little bit of an idea of what it's talking about. When you talk about the world being our enemy, there ought to be a little bit of tension in your mind. Even if you're brand new to church, even if this is your first time ever, you might hear that and say, wait a minute. I know of a really famous verse, John 3.16. Someone tell me what that says. Okay, stop. Thank you very much. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Well, wait a minute. You just said the world was an enemy of ours. For God so loved the world. So, you know, are we to love the world like God? Does that mean we're to love our enemy? Does that place an enemy camp? It kind of puts a little weird spin on that, right? 
Now, let me give you another passage that you may not know. John chapter 15 says this. This is Jesus now talking near the end of his life here on earth. And he's talking to his disciples. He's prepping them for a hockey game. He's prepping them for a war. Okay? Here's what he says. In John 15, he points out these kinds of themes to his disciples. The world is going to hate you. The world hated me first. I'm your rabbi. I'm your teacher. I'm the one that you're patterning your life after. They hated me first. They're going to hate you as well. He also says uh, that the reason that they hate you is because you, follower of Jesus, are not of this world. If you're of this world, they'd love you. They would have accepted you. Also, they're going to hate you because me, Jesus, exposes their sin. When the light comes to the darkness, it exposes evil deeds. That's why they're going to hate you. Now, there's a tension when you talk about the world. What is our place in the world? How are we to to love the world and yet realize that the world is uh, an enemy? When When the Bible speaks about the world being an enemy, it's talking about a world system that's not unique to America and certainly not unique to our present day and age. And here's what the world system that is not, uh, is not God's own, in fact, rebels against God, says. It says, in essence, this. You do not need God to be satisfied. You do not need God for your joy, for your peace, for your purpose, and you can get along without God. That's, in essence, the world that he's talking about. Is he talking about individuals that we're to look at and say are our enemy? The text says very clearly this morning, that's not what he's talking about. Rather, it's this this world system that is rebellious toward God. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, we're not going to read it, just write it down. 1 John 2, 15 says this, Do not love the world or anything in it. And he's talking about the fact that to be in love with this world system that says I can get along without God is to be an enemy of God. Do not love the world. We're to flee the temptations of the world system. How about the flesh? Here's what the flesh tells us. Satisfaction, happiness, purpose are found in the material alone. Basically, it's this. If it feels good, do it. If it feels good, it is good. And you can build a whole morality based around that. Someone's challenging you on your morality and why you make the decisions you make. Just gently, but turn the mirror around sometime. Say, hey, how do you make decisions about what's right and wrong? It's interesting because people forced to kind of put their own thing. A lot of times this is what you'll see. In essence, if you were to boil it down, if it feels good, I do it. Okay? That's the flesh. That's an enemy. Now, quick, quick question. Did Jesus die on a cross... Did Jesus die on a cross and suffer all that he suffered so that we could manage our sin and keep it at a, at a reasonable level? No. Jesus was bloodied and beaten and killed so that he could kill the power of sin and death in our life. And what does he tell his beloved children to do? He says, put to death the flesh. Kill it. Don't manage your sin. Managing your sin is this. I used to be this way. Then I became a Christian. Now I only do it on weekends. That's managing your sin. 
That's like saying, I used to have cancer all over my body. Now I just have it on the left side. I'm A-OK. And you look at someone and say, that's nuts. That's going to kill you if you don't get that out of you. That's the picture of sin. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, the enemy, the flesh, you will die. That's why this is so serious to Jesus. That's why he doesn't say manage your sin. You can't manage it. You need to kill it. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let me read this again. In whose strength is doing the killing? Ready? But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Whose strength is putting sin to death? The Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come. Now, you can be in cooperation with that or you can be in competition with that. We talked about that a few weeks ago. We absolutely have a role in this. But praise God, it doesn't depend on our good track record to keep this up. The world, the flesh, and the devil. We're going to focus on the devil this morning. We're not going to talk any more about the world and the flesh, but those are two other facets of the enemies that the Bible speaks of. Now, do you ever notice that the Bible doesn't provide for us a giant quenching of all of our curiosity about every single matter in the scriptures. You ever notice that? When you talk about the devil, Satan, enemy, demons. I worked with middle schoolers for a long time. Middle schoolers don't shy, about, shy away about what they want to talk about. They just tell you. I love that. They say, man, we want to talk about demons. We want to talk about angels. We want to talk about spiritual warfare. It's on their minds. There's a lot of questions that are not answered in the scriptures. So here's what, I want, here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to give you trite answers. I don't want to speak beyond the realm of Scripture. We say all the time, our worship services ought to be filled with wonder because there are things we don't understand. I'm going to talk to you today about some paradox. We've already talked about the world. There's a tension there. But we're going to talk about some paradox that we need to leave space for, uh, for the, 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 the mystery. There are things that, that God knows that, that we're not privy to. But what God does do is he gives us the information that we need. And I just take that by faith. I trust that for the future because he's done it for me in the past. So I say, God, I wanted to know more about the timing of my marriage. God, I want to know more about the timing of something. You, you just always came to me. You gave me the information I needed when I needed it. So in my trials today, and I have timing issues right now, I'd like to know more. And my heart goes back to saying, God provided the information you needed when you needed it in the past. He's going to do the same right now. So if you don't know the answer and you're asking, seeking, and knocking, he must not have that for you quite yet. As we talk about the devil, can you just for a minute try to take away some of the caricatures that we see? You know, the guy in the pitchfork that's always a little overweight. He's got a goofy grin on his face. Some of that stuff, it just, what it does is it messes up what we're, what we're trying to, 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 to look at here. So we're just going to look at, at what the Bible says about the devil. There are a couple of stream, extremes whenever we talk about spiritual warfare. Here are the two extremes. One is uh, that, that there is a demon behind every rock, and every time your shoe comes untied, it was a demon that untied your shoe. I went to Bible college. It sounds like Christian college. And one of the things Bible college students do is they're given more knowledge than they have the wisdom to know how to handle. And it's, an, it's a mess. I mean, it's an utter nightmare. A bunch of young 20-year-olds that just, they've been given, their, their minds being opened up to all kinds of stuff. And so they start doing all kinds of things with, with that. And, and, you know, lunchtime at, at seminaries and Christian colleges are a blast to sit there. Because you're just you're hearing people talk and, you know, all kinds of things. One of the things that, um, 
that was going on. I lived on campus there. And um, people, people who tend toward this and find just, just demons everywhere all the time and, and go, uh, go overboard with it is this. They start doing things that are, that are extra biblical. That means they're doing things that are outside of Scripture. They start going on the war hunt. They're going to find demons. They're going to chase them around. They're going to herd them up. They're going to throw them in the pit. All kinds of crazy stuff. They're going to go on the offensive. And, uh, and there was, there was a, you know, experience. I was talking with someone and they said, yeah, I went, I went over to so-and-so's house and, um, and they were, you know, they were going to basically, uh, exercise a demon out of me. And, um, and so they're doing this thing. And by the way, what I love about Santa Christian college, it didn't have this kind of narrow band. There was a, there was a, a statement of truth, but man, I had to sift through and say, wait, 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 does that, is that in the scriptures or not? Right? So here's this person. And they're sitting there, and people are praying over him. And they're kind of sitting there. You know, he's, this, this guy was sitting there uh, and getting prayed over. And he had an issue that he wanted prayer for. And, um, and he's sitting there, and he, he opens his eyes like this, just a little bit. He just kind of peeks. He's like, what's going on? I just want to see what's going on right now. He peeks like this. And, um, and the person who was kind of leading this thing goes, I see you, demon! And he points at him. And he goes, nope, it's just me. Like, he was... <laughs> He was like, no, it's, it's just me. I, all I'm doing is opening my eye. I just want to see what's happening. That's all that's going on right now. Now, that's not to say that, that the, the, the spirit world doesn't exist. In fact, to do that is the other extreme. Let me pose this to you. Both of these are completely naive. Completely naive. And they get you in a world of mess. Both of these also tend towards self-reliance. If you over-spiritualize and you find a demon in every peaked eye that you're praying for, what you're doing is you're, 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 you're going into grounds. You're going in to claim whole lands that God didn't prepare the way for you in. What's that relying on? It's yourself. It's self-reliance. If you deny the spirit world, and believe me, there are a lot of Christians who make bold professions of faith, but they live their life as if the spirit world does not exist. Who are you, who, who are you relying on? Well, yourself, of course. Because you don't even live like there's a real Holy Spirit that's in control of you. So both of these extremes tend toward self-reliance. The Bible gives us no lengthy biography on the devil, no long discourse about the devil, no ghost stories about the devil. But absolutely and utterly, Jesus talked often, and the Scriptures talk often, assuming His existence. The enemy. Here we go. A couple words I want to just show you. The enemy is spiritual and not physical. Our enemies are not human, but demonic. Your enemy, if you are a Christian, is demonic. It's not human. And that's so important to remember. We've already seen this idea of it being spiritual in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Talking about those of you who once walked in a certain way, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The enemy is spiritual, not physical. Ephesians 4.27, we just covered this not long ago, give no opportunity to the devil. Now look with me in, in verse uh, 12. In verse 12, Paul decides to go on and take great pains to show it's not just the devil as in one entity, but the devil and his army. The devil has an army that accompanies him in the work. 
What he describes is, a, we're not going to take time to look through. You go, you go read through some commentaries about what they think these different terms mean. There's a lot there. It's pretty fascinating. But it, what it describes is a highly intelligent, organized rebellion. Many of you are following the rebellions in the Middle East. Some of them are more organized than the other. It's important to realize our spiritual foe is highly intelligent and organized. We're going to see that he's controlled, but he's highly intelligent and he's organized. These are different rankings that are being talked about. There are strategies that, that, that go on. Many times we think, uh, even as Christians, in terms of the material, in favor of the spiritual. I believe, as I've walked around and talked to people and invested in people's lives, that much of the torment, much of the anxiety, depression, restlessness, headaches, resistance towards spiritual things, bondage that people feel, is spiritual in nature. There are spiritual forces at work. Does that mean you shouldn't take aspirin when you get a headache? No, take your aspirin, that's fine. But what I'm saying is this. The general anxiety, the general affront. I can, I can read it in people's body language sometimes. I have been in here before and someone said, yeah, when I first showed up at this church, you started opening the Bible and talking. I was really resistant to you. And I said, yeah, I could tell that. He goes, you could? I go, yeah, well, you had this look on your face the whole time that I had God's word open. And I said, uh, I see you, Zach. I said, you know what? That's not uncommon. That's not uncommon. You have, you have God's word being opened. It's not because of me. It's the Holy Spirit doing that. And that's, and that's not uncommon that, that there's a, an, an offense there that's, that's going on. What if we started to look at the economy, the political landscape, the environment, the fears that we have, the celebrations that our nations and worlds enjoy and think about? What if we started to do all of that entertainment and look at it through a spiritual lens? The reality is this. There is a... Um, a uh, enemy that is out there and we tend to do this sinful man we tend to think in terms of don't raise your hand but think if you've thought these ways leaning these ways my enemy is my boss my enemy is my spouse my enemy is that former close friend of mine my enemy is that one neighbor we may not voice it in that way because we're Christians and we've been told that that's kind of shunned. And so we don't say it quite like that. But our brains can sometimes think that way. Our enemy is human. Our enemy is not demonic. And that's a trap that we can fall into. <clears throat> the other thing about our enemy, not only that he's, that he's spiritual, but he's also deceptive. One of the highlighting points of the enemy that we see all through is that he's scheming and that he is deceptive. One of his titles, one of his names, we're told a lot of different names for the enemy, by the way, is the angel of light. He disguises himself as the angel of light. You know what that's doing? It's pretending to say, come follow me, I'm the good teacher. And he leads many people astray that way. All through the scriptures, all through the early church, false teachers were warned against. This is not the gospel we brought to you. This is something foreign and different. That is raging today in this city and in this country and in this world. He's deceptive. King David, he incites King David to number the people. He afflicts Job. He accuses Joshua. He, sifts, he asks Jesus to sift Peter like wheat, and he tempts Jesus. Here's the big idea with an enemy that is deceptive. Okay, catch this. When you sit down for community group this week and you gather and you say, we're going to now 
uh, lean in on each other and discuss God's word and talk about these things. Here's what I want you to remember. We say this sometimes at men's group. There is an enemy that is lying to you right now. While you're sitting in church, there is an enemy lying to you right now. Sometimes those lies come in the form of an accusation. You will never be good enough if the preacher only knew this about you. He wouldn't smile at you after service. If your community group had any idea of the thoughts you had, you could never. Sometimes it comes in accusation. Sometimes it comes in the form of pride, which was Satan's original sin. You know more than this guy talking right now. That verse isn't meant to be taken literal. How do we even know? There's so many, all these different things. The enemy is lying to you. World systems that are present right now. I would say this. I, I would say that Satan is at work in both overt, obvious, evil ways. One of the hot things right now that's fantastic that God has raised up the church to do something about is the sex trafficking trade going on worldwide. Just read it. Just Google that and, and read a few articles. It's devastating. It's evil. It's demonic. And I'll tell you what it does. It follows the enemy, the flesh. If it feels good, it must be right and good. It's disgusting. It's overt. And I don't know how you can't look at that and say that's pure evil. That's a real overt kind of a way. I think he's also, though, in world systems, functioning in a covert way where seemingly innocent and even good works of humanitarian effort and endeavors are, are infiltrated by a, a lying, deceiving enemy. And so here's one of the catch uh, things that I talk to parents about. Sometimes parents say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take my kid and I'm going to put him in a, in a Christian school. That way he'll get, he'll get a real good education. And I say, you know what? Praise God for Christian schools. Praise God for teachers. They're going to teach them beyond that. But... Don't be naive. Don't be naive to think that because you've done that, you can kind of wash your hands of it. Who does God call to train up your children? You. Don't just pawn them off somewhere else. Well, I got them this at Berean. Have you checked it out? Have you read it? It can be naive. Now, I'm not calling Christian schools and Berean satanic. What I am saying is this. Publishers are a business and they're looking to make money. Entertainers are a business and they're looking to make money. When money becomes your God, your theology gets really screwy. That's all I'm talking about. God's given us a standard. God's given us a straight line. Test it against it. Test and be able to discern, is this the will of God or not? Overt ways and covert ways, he is deceptive. Let me tell you, by the way... Uh, just look for this in one week's time. Look for the messages. I'm preaching a message, hopefully bathed in prayer and, and gospel-centered, Jesus-exalting. All week long, I want you to look for messages being preached by our enemy, by the enemy of God. Just look for it. You don't have to look hard. You find a movie and you go, that's kind of a cute story. What's the message being preached there? It might be demonic but it's PG. Okay. Still is demonic. 
Just look for things in overt ways and in subtle ways, messages that are being preached that you say, wow, that is absolutely opposite of what God tells us in the scriptures. Let me tell you one key part and then we'll move on. One key way that Satan will try to confuse you, and that is this. There is a God part to our walking the Christian walk. And there is an our part to walking the Christian walk. Let's take temptation for a minute. If we confuse the potential for resisting temptation, the potential, with the responsibility for resisting temptation, then we're losing the temptation battle outright. I can tell you that. Whose job is it to give us the potential to resist temptation? God's part. It's the spirit at work in me that puts the deeds of of the flesh to death. If I start thinking it's my potential, I'm messed up. Whose responsibility is it to engage in that and resist temptation? It's ours. God's not going to resist temptation for you. He's given us that role to complete. Satan will try to confuse you on this very point. And if he has confused you, you are giving in to temptation. I, can, I don't even have to know what it is. I don't have to know anything about your background, any good work you've done, anything God's been doing in your life in the last 10 years. I can tell you flat out, you are losing the temptation battle if you get this inverted. It's very subtle. It's very simple. But if we confuse God's part for our part, we, we get upside down in this. And Satan begins to win. I want to illustrate it this way. If there's two countries, think about this. Two countries that are at war, okay? They're battling. One country gets the help of a massive country that comes along and helps win the war. For a season of time, what we see is this. As those people begin to go in and infiltrate their territory and win the war, the enemy doesn't just pack up bags and say, well, we lost. We're going to go be refugees a couple countries over. What they do is this. For a season of time, that defeated country changes their tactics to guerrilla warfare. Uh, what's guerrilla warfare? Someone help me out with that. Wow, Cassie, good, good, good definition. That's, that's good. That's like straight off of Wikipedia. Um, she doesn't have an iPhone in her hand. They use their home terrain. I can't even repeat this. They use their home terrain to defeat the, the enemy. Is that what you basically said? Yeah, yeah. So, so listen, here's, here's what they do. Instead of it being an overt, overt war, they take it underground, right? And she's absolutely right. She brought in the idea of, of a home, fam, familiar territory that's there. That's essentially what's gone on in the spiritual walk with you. Is that the enemy hasn't just left. The enemy doesn't just roll over and give over a Christian. Say, well, move on to someone else. They switch tactics to guerrilla warfare. Here's my question for you that we're going to look at as a community group this week. What lies are you believing from the devil? What accusations? What resources? What doubt? What self-confidence is he lying to you about? What, what religious tactic is he trying to employ in your life? What lie are you believing from the devil? And what light of God's truth needs to be shown in that dark place? Not only are we told about an enemy, but we're told how and what to prepare for in battle. Battle's the same. It's spiritual, it's not physical. Just like the enemy is spiritual, not physical, the battle that we fight is spiritual and not physical. 
it's unseen. Now, some of you think I only preach on Sundays. My family will tell you different. I preach many times during the week. One of my sermons that I love to give is this. As we're driving to Santa Cruz, which we do often as a family, and we're heading to the beach, my kids can almost fill in the blank for me. But I am preaching to them a little mini sermon about undertoes at the beach. Because here's what happens with undertoes. You're at the beach and you're having fun at the beach and you just think it's just a day at the beach, right? And there is a deadly, potentially deadly enemy called an undertow sitting there waiting to grab you and pull you under and or out to sea. And every year, hundreds of people around the world die from this. I was in Mexico on a missions trip. Is Travis Cook in here? Where's Travis at? Me and Travis, we're out in the water, and I felt an undertow. We talked, we were, we're kind of watching over about 20, 30 uh, kids from the orphanage there. We're all having a good time. Me and Travis went out a little bit further, and uh, I said, Travis, I said, I said, check this out for a second. Paddle over to here with me. We're on boogie boards, and I said, now, I want you to watch the power of an undertow, okay, or, or of, a, of, a, of a rip current. So we sat there, and in literally 20 seconds, we are now 300 yards off of the shore, and we're heading towards California. I mean, it was remarkable, and you could just feel it. I said, just hang on your board. You're with me. You're totally fine, but I want you to see this. Now, how do you get out of a rip current? Ethan, tell me. Use some parallel to the beach. See, he's heard the sermon. You hear it enough time. That's why you go to church every week. You hear it enough, you, you start to get it, right? Here's the thing. Self-reliance says, swim it in. I'm gonna, I, I can do this. I swim on the swim team. I can do this. Strong swimmers have died from doing that. If you're prepped for battle, you know. You just swim parallel, and you'll get out of it eventually. Don't panic. Be prepared for it. Know that it's coming. Know that it's your enemy. It's not a fun ride. Woohoo! Swim parallel, and you'll get out of it. Paul says this. Take this up so that you can withstand the attacks of the enemy. They are coming. Rip currents are real, and they're there. Hang on to this. This is called a boogie board. Wear your wetsuit. You will be warm and buoyant. You will, not, you will not die. You will not drown. Hang on to this. That's Paul's message here. And in that, there can be a sense of no fear. I don't think I've asked Travis this specifically, but I don't think Travis was afraid. We went up there, and we kind of got out of it eventually, and we just paddled to shore and walked up. If he was doing that all alone and no one had ever told him anything about it, he would be freaking out right then. Because all of a sudden you just feel yourself, everyone's getting smaller, and that's a real panicky feeling. Jesus started his ministry with a 40-day battle with Satan in Luke chapter 4, and near the end of his battle in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the battle intensifying so much and ramping up so much that, it's, that, that the Gospels record that Jesus actually sweat drops of blood in that moment. Jesus was battled in a spiritual way. Those closest to him weren't even really aware of what's going on. What are they doing close by? They're sleeping. In the heat of battle, their master needs them, and they're sleeping. That reveals it's a spiritual battle, not a physical battle. What does Satan oppose? Isn't it God's plan to create a new society? I mean, that's what this whole one series is about. You know what Satan is opposing? He's opposing that. He's seeking to destroy that. Has God, through Jesus Christ, broken down the walls that divide not only different races of people, but different cultures from each other and different economic situations? Of course he has. You know what Satan's looking to do? He and his emissaries are striving to rebuild those same walls that Christ, through the, through the empty grave, has broken down and destroyed. 
God intends to redeem his people to live together in purity and the powers of hell will scatter among them seeds of discord and sin to try with all his might to prevent that from happening. I've worked with a lot of different teens and seen a lot of different destroying forces in people's lives. And I've seen an amazing God who overcomes. I want to tell you a story about 14-year-old Lori. This didn't happen at our church, but it happened at Blue Springs Community Church. 14-year-old Lori had just been baptized months before. There's a one-room country church a few miles away from her home. The ceremony was attended by about 60 people, nearly half of them members of Lori's own family. Lori Lori dropped out of the church not long afterward, however. The pastor and his wife tried several times, but they failed to persuade Lori to return to the small church. The entire entire church was concerned for her, but no one suspected the real reason for her absence. Lori was pregnant. About a month before she expected to deliver, Lori tidied her room, emptied her school locker, and wrote a, a note to her mother. You kept asking me if I was okay, and I kept telling you I was, but I wasn't okay. I'm sorry, Mom. I've got too many problems. I'm taking the easy way out. And I won't go into the details, but she basically went in and slipped in front of a train and killed herself. And right before she killed herself, the conductor, who had a 14-year-old daughter himself, saw her cross, do the sign of the cross over her stomach and cover it up. I don't say this to bum you out or depress you. I say this to, to, to wake you up to the war. The war is real. The war is raging all around us. And there was an enemy lying to Lori. Praise God that the prodigal son didn't believe the lies that were communicating to him. I promise you, when you're in a prodigal situation like that, the lie is this. You've gone too far. You've strayed too far away. At least the prodigal son's dad would take him back as a slave. You wouldn't even be received back that way. Do not believe the enemy that's lying for your destruction. Not only is the battle spiritual, but the battle is won. There's a sense that the battle is won, but not over. There's a now and a not yet to the spiritual battle that rages. Already in Ephesians... Look at all these past tense sayings, okay? Just listen, Ephesians 1.11. We have obtained an inheritance. We can know the riches of His glorious inheritance and the greatness of His power toward us who believe. Uh, verse one, uh, chapter 1.18. Chapter 2.6. We are raised up with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly places. Present tense. The battle's won. And yet there is a not yet element to it. Listen to these, all from Ephesians chapter 1. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Chapter 114 says that we're sealed in the Holy Spirit, which is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Future tense. And in chapter 4, we're to build up the body of Christ, the church, until we all attain to mature manhood, until we're complete. Do you sense the now and the not yet of the victory? That's what's what's really going on. I have this in your notes because it's so important to remember. Believers fight from victory, not for victory. And that's so critical. If we fight believers from a position of victory and not wondering how how it's going to tip, 
It changes so many verses that we can read. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says this, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all you do be done in love. We can have no fear as we move forward in the spiritual battle. Psalm 23 says, You prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. Here's a great biblical example of this. The story of Joshua. Joshua is the successor to the great leader Moses. And here's what Jesus, or here's what God says to Joshua in the book of Joshua, chapter 1. He's having him lead a nation and to claim what was already theirs, the promised land. And he was to walk forward in faith and fight the battle that ultimately was already won. Lead these people into the land that I am giving them, says God. Wherever you step with your foot, will be on land that I am giving you. And then he says this, No one will be able to stand against you. I will be with you. I will not fail or abandon you. Isn't that empowering? That's how we march forward in the spiritual walk. Now that sounds really great on a Sunday morning. You know where it's tough? Tuesday night. Wednesday midday. Now catch this. These are the first few verses of chapter 1 in Joshua. You can go and read the whole story later on. By verse 6, we're only six verses in. Here's what he says. Therefore, because all this is true, the victory's already won. Every spot you put your foot will be ground your, your, your claiming. I've already prepped it for you. The battle's won. Therefore, be strong and courageous. Now you don't challenge someone to be strong and courageous unless what? Unless they're weak, wimpy, and scared. Joshua's going forward, and what God knows is there are people coming after you. You're going to get hip-checked so hard, you're going you're to see stars for a second. I'm with you. I will not fail you. I will not abandon you. We've already won the game. Keep pressing on. Keep leaning into me. Friends, as we march forward in our spiritual battle, we fight from victory, not for victory. Finally, it's, it's directed. Uh, and I'll just say this. The rules of engagement in battle are this. In different places, we're told to be on guard. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. James chapter 4 says that we're to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Don't go chase the devil. Don't hunt him down. Resist him. And here's a really important one from Ephesians 6. We're to stand firm. If you're in the military, you're told this. Hold your position. That doesn't mean advance and go run after the enemy. It doesn't mean run away like a school kid the second a bomb goes off. It means hold your position. That's what we're told. Stand firm. People love to get all into the details of the armor of God, and we're going to do that. And there's a reason why specifics were given. But here's the big overarching thing. Your stance in the battle is more important than these individual pieces all combined. Your stance is to stand firm. Listen to this, verse 14. Stand therefore with God's armor so that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 11 in our passage today. Verse 13. And to withstand in the evil day, having done all this, we will then be able to stand firm. Then 14 says stand firm. It just keeps going on and on. There's kind of a theme, a pattern that we see. Very quickly, Paul in Ephesus, chapter 19 of Acts. Paul goes into Ephesus, right? Here's the, here's the church we're looking at. It's the letter to the Ephesians. He led many Jews and Gentiles to the knowledge of Christ. 
Those who had practiced magic burned their books, and the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Do you think Paul would at this point draw the attention of the enemy? Absolutely. And so was there opposition? Absolutely. He was run out of the synagogue by unbelieving Jewish leaders. He was mocked by apostate Jews who were exorcists. And he was threatened by Demetrius and his fellow silversmiths. You know what they were doing? They were in a business. They had a little business going on. Their business was to make dumb, mute, powerless, impotent idols. And they were making a fortune off of people's being deceived to. Buy this little trinket, put it in a prominent place in your home, bow to it, pray to it, it'll keep you safe. We call them flat screen TVs now. But back in the day, they were little, they were little idols. You know what? They came after Paul. His people are burning that stuff. They're getting rid of that. They're not being able to sell as much of that. You know what Paul's action was? Here's 1 Corinthians 16, 8 to 9. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. He sought the Lord out. I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Church, when we are facing opposition, when we are struggling with what is going on here, View it through a spiritual work. Collectively, do that as a family. Do that as an individual. If you were baptized recently and your life circumstantially has completely fallen apart, praise God and stand firm. You're under attack. God's got great things for you. Hold on. Just listen to this. We're closing with this. In fact, Ben, you can come on up. Revelation chapter 12. You've got to hear the end of the story. You've got to hear where all of this is going. When you have prayer times, know who you're praying to. Think about it. Think on it. Revelation chapter 12 verse 10 says this, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. That's the end of the story. That's where we're headed. That's the victory that you get to fight from. I want to challenge you as we dismiss this morning. By the way, the question under that one is this. Are you giving up ground that God has already won in your life? Don't do it. Pray for strength and courage. Go read the story of Joshua. Here's your basic training for this particular time. I want you not to be like Ivan McGuire. Ivan McGuire was a guy who wanted to be great at what he did. What he did was skydive for a living and he took pictures. At the age of 35, he had accrued 800 jumps out of an airplane. Ivan died young at the age of 35. It wasn't an automobile accident. It wasn't illness. It wasn't something like that. He jumped out of an airplane without his parachute. Happened in the 80s. Jump, can you imagine? 800 jumps. He's so focused on getting the picture right that he did something that none of us novices would ever do. I mean, think about it. Last thing you do before you jump out of a plane, what are you doing? Yep, it's there. And I'm checking the guy who packed it. You're sure you packed this right. I don't care about money back guarantee at this point. 
This guy hit the ground going 150 miles an hour and died. Basic training for this week is this. We're going we're to come full circle with this in a few weeks. But prayer. Do you see how your prayer life is not about when things go rough, when your car's running bad, when you're up for a promotion? Prayer is an ongoing, daily, moment-by-moment thing. Pray without ceasing becomes all of a sudden not a religious chore, but a privilege. I have access to my Father to cry out, Help! Any and every time. Keep first things first. Ephesians chapter 3. Just close your eyes. Let this be a prayer as we move into... Worshipping through offering and worshipping through some closing songs. Ephesians 3.20 says this. This takes on whole new meaning when you think about the spiritual battle we're in. Now to Him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, Forever and ever. Amen.